Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I am joined by Jesse Ellis, the Director of Health and Performance at the Portland Trailblazers. In this episode, we'll chat about communication between physios and SNCs, relaying information between playing coaches and management, and we'll also discuss some nuances of biomechanics and athlete testing. This episode of Informed Performance has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of Forstex. Forstex can help you to analyse neuromuscular strength, performance and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 force plate tests and analyzes them with a single click, helping you to get quick and very accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more about Forstex, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. But without further ado, let's get into today's conversation between myself, Andy McDonald, and Jesse Ellis. Jesse, you're a friend of friends and looking at your Twitter bio, I've dug out that it says uh, you're a devotee of biomechanics and bourbon. So uh, a little bit disappointed we can't have a glass and chat, but um, welcome to the show anyway and thanks for coming on. Well, you had to dive pretty deep to get into my Twitter account since I have like maybe a handful of followers. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I enjoy liquor and I love, I, I love biomechanics, so I'm ready whenever you want to have that meeting. Cool. Well, hopefully with the uh, the pending NBA season, we can we can organise that if you're on the road. Um, yes. Just just in case this is any of the list, any of the listeners um, first encounter listening to you, would you just be able to kind of outline, I guess, your background through to what you do today? Yeah. So I'm a physical therapist. I've been practicing for probably close to ten years. Um, I graduated from the University of North Dakota. Uh, was tired of snow and then moved down to Phoenix. And one of the reasons why I moved down to Phoenix was more just the accessibility to sports. There's, you know, a lot of different angles and opportunities. Uh, so I was there practicing at, you know, different clinics, private, private settings, and uh, completed a three-year fellowship program in orthopedic manual therapy. And then finishing up with that, I kind of fell into sports. So naturally, I was more of a manual therapist and kind of going through just the clinical, uh, the clinical advancement in my career. And then from there, I fell into uh, opportunity with Exos. I went to China and worked with the uh, Shanghai Institute of Research and Sports Science and was there for a few months. And then from there, I uh, got onto the tennis circuit and worked with a few uh, pro tennis players and was kind of overseeing. Uh, PT, performance, nutrition, et cetera, et cetera. And then lastly, I landed, landed in Exos and kind of built my way up into the leadership roles and became the director of physical therapy and oversaw six different teams and kind of managed the uh, brick and mortar uh, facilities for Exos. And the last, this will be season four, I moved up to Portland and became the director of player health and performance. So it's been kind kind of a, uh, an eclectic approach between starting as a generalist, then went into manual therapy, then fell into sports, more private sector, and then fell into team sports from there. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, hearing the combination of Exos, which I think um, is probably really good system, you know, it's, it's a very good system and it's very systems thinking as a sort of a, approach to things, I'd imagine, combined with tennis which is a very sort of individual individualized approach to 
athlete performance with its you know the nature of the game that kind of um contrast but combination must be quite useful now in in say the NBA where you haven't got huge playing squads but you do need systems and you do need individualized care has that kind of I don't know whether it was conscious to do those two things or just life but have you found those uh you know that combination has been quite helpful to you at this stage sure the uh the mentality of exos is very very structured uh with dynamic mobility and you know dynamic stretch and warm-ups and regressions and progressions of plyometrics and different movement patterns i think they do a very good job with understanding basic sport specific movements and in tennis when you have a private you're basically one-on-one it's all about routines and getting the athlete comfortable with their warm-up cool down preparation before the the match uh then there needs to be a little bit more custom customization within the basketball uh, industry, but you have, you know, 15 guys. So again, you're still trying to instill those routines that you find in tennis or any other, uh, you know, individual sport. Uh, But yeah, you just have to kind of manufacture it into maybe a little bit more philosophical approach where you're addressing all of the general needs of, of players, but then changing some nuances based on history and position and everything else that's involved with athlete care no it's definitely a cool combo um yeah we've had guests on who or multiple guests on who either are or have been heads of performance in whatever sport and industry they're in um and i think you know heads of performance and and director roles can have quite wide-ranging responsibilities and meanings what does director of health and performance entail for you at the trailblazers What, what how does your role function within their their setup yeah, that's a common question because I think there's a lot of people that are from from the outside wanting to understand sports. They just really want to know the information of who's leading the department and kind of the uh, the goals within that that system. But then within team sports, everything's completely different based on the particular sport, and then it's it varies between teams from there. So on, on my end, just for context, we, we run a pretty, I would call it a flattened hierarchy or a decentralized approach, which is, it's kind of the reflection of the sport at hand. So we're in the NBA where it's a 15-man roster. It's much smaller than most pro sports, with, with team sports, that is. And uh, you can kind of get a little lost with titles, especially with a smaller family. And in our approach, I'm kind of the central quarterback or point guard or whatever you want to call it, but I oversee all information when it comes to health, performance, and nutrition. Uh, but with that, within that, every role of our, our team is very independently driven, autonomy, uh, and there's, there's value with each person, which requires me to hire the right people that can fit those roles. Uh, with within that kind of decentralized model, there just needs to be constant communication, especially with time sensitive or contextual uh, information that I need to provide to the management and coaching. But again, it requires a lot of trust. It requires a lot of when it comes to leadership on my end, there needs to be kind of a step back approach. I don't want to call it micromanagement or lack thereof. But there, there is a humility that's required when you allow your staff to have 
the ability to make decisions. So that's kind of the context of, of our current setup within the team. Uh, and then when it comes to my day-to-day, when it with information, anything that's pertaining to the health and performance, I provide it to the coaches. Um, I help with our head coach with describing, basically providing uh, updates on health and then giving advice on, on practice load. And then with the upper management we really, you know, I try to be black and white. I try to give them very concise information that the, like my GM needs that information and he wants it quickly so he can make a good decision from what he finds. And within sports, there's a lot of motion that can be included in your decisions. And for me, it just needs to be very objective and protect the athlete and making sure we make the right decision. So that's kind of where the communication piece there's a lot of different dynamics because I also speak a lot with agents when injuries happen. So I need to have this um, objective and unbiased um, communication to provide this information for everybody involved. I recently had Mike Friday on the on the podcast, who's the USA Rugby Sevens coach. And you know, building on what you just said, then when I had Mike on, we spoke about how he, as a playing coach, prefers information given to him. So I kind of want to build on that question a little bit, but with yourself as someone that has the information, um, you know, you're collecting the information yourself, but you you also no doubt have the information given to you, but also as a person who no doubt then, as you said, has to compile, summarize and communicate that information to, to management and coaches, you know, amongst other people. From your experience, would you be able to kind of share some wisdom on how you go about sharing key information to coaches or management if you're being, you know, particularly cognizant or strategic. And, and maybe that could be, you know, injury prognosis or player availability because that's, you know, some common some common threads. Yeah, that's that right there might be one of the more challenging aspects of my job is instilling trust for upper management, coaching and players and even agents. So when I look at, let's say we're having a conversation and I'm having a conversation with a player on their injury and their prognosis, uh, you got to look at it on a psychological level because every player is going to take this information different. There are players that are, I would say, on the spectrum, much more resilient to injuries or are willing to uh, play through pain. And in that analogy, I would say that the player is the gas pedal and I'm the brake. So the language that I give this player is going to be much different than on the other spectrum, a player that is hypervigilant and much more aware of their pain and uh, their injury and their prognosis. Now I'm the, now I'm the gas and that player is the brake. So there's different levels of communication just with the player that I try to keep an eye on when I give this information. So if somebody is dealing with pain and let's say they're a resilient player, uh, I try not to tell, you know, I'd rather bring them into their environment. So their environment is the basketball court. And I would rather have a conversation about their injury while just naturally on the court when they're sitting on the bench versus in my office with a closed door, because they're going to, they're going to, uh, have fear in that setting because they truly all they want to do is play, and I am the break saying that hey, 
you might not be able to play at this point, or this is the amount of uh, days or weeks that you're going to be out. So I also educate in that type of scenario with a player, you know, if they are resilient, then I'm going to say, hey, this is my concern level from one out of 10, it's a three. And if you play the next three, four games and things haven't changed, or we're going to just make do with this, you know, you're going to play through this pain, you might be at a six or seven by the end of the week, and we might lose you for a few games. So you're trying to improve the visual of of their prognosis of something they're dealing with. And then on the other end, if somebody's a little bit more hypervigilant, I'm probably going to bring them into my office. I'm going to close my door. I'm going to answer all the questions that they have. I'm going to be much more, you know, eye contact and basically sympathize for them with what they're dealing with. And then I'm going to realistically, you know, talk, talk about the diagnosis and, and the risks. But then secondly, if there's maybe a, a discrepancy in how they're acting and, and uh, what they believe their symptoms are versus something that I've examined, you know, I, w- I may relate their function currently to their pain. So if they're able to play through pain, you can kind of diminish some of the fear just showing what they can do at the current status. So there's some communication nuances with players for sure. And I, I just, it's one of those things that naturally come as you know, the psychology and, and the person that you're, you're providing this information to. Once you've, I guess, like once you've got that information from the the player, or you've got you've had those conversations with the player, and then you've got to go to the the playing coach. Is that you know it's going to vary based on a the relationship of the coach and also um, the style of the coach and the coach's personality or the, or the management personalities. But have is over your kind of career in sports so far? Is there you know a, a strategy or a or a sort of um, a way that you go about that if you're being strategic? to give them information that they may not like. Yeah, I mean, the environment of the NBA is, I mean, we have three to four games per week. And, like, it's naturally, as as a high-performance director in this sport, is naturally, they can't play. Like, hit the brakes. And you you want to present yourself as a professional that's looking for collaboration and not be the bad guy. And... Uh, our staff jokingly, they call me Grim or the Grim Reaper because I'm, I'm the guy that walks in with bad news all the time. Hopefully I have some good news, but in general, I am telling them what they can't do. So I will have a very open conversation with our coach and say, what do you want this player to do within practice today? You look through the practice plan, you find out what maybe the the top two most valuable things you want to see this player do. And then it has to align with how the player's functioning and the medical diagnosis and prognosis. So it has to have a lot of, I guess, open dialogue on and, and give and take. And the coach also just, you have to provide information on diagnosis on if there is a pathology, what's happening, what's the short-term versus long-term risk. Like you need to inform the coach as in as much as possible so that he can understand where you're coming from. And, you know, then you have a conversation if it's, if it's practice and he wants our player to practice and I can say, 
all right, coach, he's functioning at 80% right now, and we have a game tomorrow. How much do you care about him practicing? If I can guarantee you that he might be 80% or, or higher going into the game tomorrow, versus if you put him on, on the court today, he might be at 60%, and he may not play. So is it worth what you want out of practice? And if so, this is kind of the restrictions you should have. But you just don't want to be designated as a director that continually just wants to shut everybody down. You just, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a respect on both levels, for sure. Yeah, this is a bit of a mean question. And I think in terms of owning and communicating risk, and I, I think especially owning risk, you obviously want it to be a collaborative and mutually agreed um, thing, if we call it that. You know, along your along your career, how how I guess do you is there anything that's really helped you to understand risk and how do you navigate communicating risk if people aren't on the same page? Yeah, I mean that's such a vague question, and I, you know, it all relates to what are you dealing with medically, right? Are we are we dealing with a tendinopathy? How how reactive is it? Are we dealing with a you know, an OCD lesion where there's some long-term impact issues if you push it too hard. Um, is it a, you know, is it an ankle sprain? So those are all decisions that you have to kind of relate to the risk factors. And you can, based on each case, you got to look at what's the worst case scenario, right? And then you can kind of taper your decision off of that. It's a tough. It's a tough answer because it's such a dynamic um, decision making on risk. Uh, but you know, you just got to look at the the pathology, the diagnosis, the history. How old are they? What's their playing style? You know, if they're more of a conservative, non non aggressive player, you can probably get by with uh, different diagnosis versus or diagnoses versus a player that's a high flyer that's going to hit the floor. Maybe a guard that's taken on a lot of impact from bigs and and having that kind of disadvantage on a nightly basis like there's a lot of factors you got to look at yeah no, that makes sense yeah. very contextual um yeah. you kind of hit it a little bit earlier when we we're talking about communication um you know commu- in terms of communication with pts reporting to you that's probably you know fairly natural given your clinical background and also your background um at the bricks and mortar of exos um you know, you obviously have to communicate with strength and conditioning coaches and other professionals um, or technical professionals, and in sure. particular, the ones that deal with the rehab processes. And you know, many of them will have a good general a, ge- a good general context on injuries, but they might not perhaps have the same uh, depth of knowledge as somebody from a clinical background. You know, when you've got those situations, how do you go about identifying um, where that person's knowledge is at on the injury that they're going to be involved with? And, you know, do you help structure maybe the education for them around that injury for them to be effective? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a really good, good question because, you know, I might, I might piss some people off here, but uh, in general, I find there's a air of arrogance or condescending manner that physical therapists can provide when they are discussing things with a strength coach or with a trainer or I just I've I've found that out uh just through my experience so you get you know 
ideally you need to know, hopefully you've worked with this person a while that you can kind of at least understand their level of, of reasoning and, and their background. But if you, if you do know, you know, the first thing, like when I walk into the, the, the weight room, like the first thing I, I don't want to walk in and show myself as an authoritarian authority, authority where I'm basically minimizing the role of the strength coach and saying, this guy can't, you know, do anything with his right knee at this point. And just, kind of have a blanket vague statement that's just a sign of disrespect in my in my eyes and i it, it also shows a demarcation between myself and the strength coach in front of the player so you know i usually talk to the coach on what i found on the table so if there's a current update if i have a functional asterisk that i found and that things are improving i will just go into details on that so you know, he demonstrated with some pain at 30 degrees of knee flexion with the single leg squat, you know, after treatment or after whatever intervention we chose, it's improved by this much. And, you know, let's go and address it with what, you know, you can even ask the strength coach, what, how would you want to address hitting this range of motion within this squat pattern? Like that, that could be an easy conversation. And that's a little technical on going, going into like degrees of, of knee flexion, but it's, you, you at least try to provide some insight of what you found on the table and you respect the, uh, the input from the strength coach. Um, so, had, um, sorry, yeah. Karen. Yeah. And then, you know, the other thing I would say is if I can't give information of an update, that's not, that's on me. That's on me as a PT. I've been sloppy that day. I got lazy. I went into treatment, didn't really get a, a, a before and after asterisk. And I can't give a lot of information because it was on me. So if, if you're, if you are a PT and you're having a hard time providing information to a strength coach, that might be on you and you, you got to look at yourself in the mirror. So, and we, we can talk a little bit more about just like diagnoses of certain things that a strength coach may not know that you might kind of go into detail so that they naturally want to, want to know what they, what you're going to provide them because it's going to help them in, in their role. So, um, that's kind of my, my snapshot on that. I'm, I'm curious because there'll be people listening who are from, you know, different countries, cultures, and, and have been exposed to different sporting leagues. Um, we've had a couple of guests on and, you know, a couple that stand out are Alan Hazlitt at the British Olympic Association and, and Heather Linden at the UFC, both, um, both physical therapists or physios um, who work in settings where uh, kind of co-assessment is very key. It, I don't know whether you can talk about this from your organization, your organizational standpoint, or maybe from an MBA perspective more broadly, but have you seen, or do you utilize co-assessment where perhaps you and the strength coach are um, in the training room at the same time, gathering information, information on the diagnosis or perhaps the causations? You know, naturally that would be a great scenario. Uh, I'm not saying that it doesn't happen, but with, with our timeline of, of providing intervention and training sessions with players, it's, it gets a little challenging just because of practice and everything else. So that's, that's where a lot of the communication is really important because there, there are times where I can't even be in the weight room after I provide the information to the strength coach of what I found. And that's where trust comes in. So there are times when if it's, if it's a complicated case, 
then we'll probably have a co-assessment. There might be also early on in, in the baseline assessment when we do our thorough screens, we can kind of break down, hey, this is what I found within this hip range of motion. These would be, let's kind of go over, let's brainstorm different mobilization techniques that would be helpful on his like normal routine moving forward with the season. So it's, I guess it's just based on timing, but yeah, it, you know, any t- anytime I can, it'd be great. Building on that communication with strength coaches from a clinical standpoint, um, do you have a style or a set way of how you try to communicate diagnoses with strength coach, um, strength coaches? I'm sure it's quite natural, you know, most of the time, but do you have a sort of organized way of doing that? Yeah. I mean, you can look at diagnosis, you know, diagnosis and pathology. And a lot of times, you know, with the trends of physical therapies, we're trying to get away from talking about pathology and pathological changes because how does it relate to function? But I do feel like there still needs to be an element of discussion and understanding both on my end, but then also as a strength coach, he or she should know uh, a little bit about that pathology. So like an example that commonly we see in basketball is if you're looking at a knee issue and looking at an OCD lesion, either on a weight-bearing structure or behind the patella, and how does that relate to tendinopathy? Because you can you can state that as anterior knee pain as a diagnosis if you want to go general, but you're going to address that differently in my eyes when you are discussing this concept with a strength coach. So with a tendinopathy, I'm looking at ten- time under tension. I'm looking at applying some heavy load to that tendon complex and you may even want to start out with an isometric load and then kind of go from there in my eyes with an ocd lesion if i don't get the diagnosis right i would approach the ocd lesion differently because i wouldn't i wouldn't want to do a sustained load to that structure right away i would i would rather educate the strength coach hey, this is an OC lesion. I want you to get through some just general movement, like kind of go through some larger movement throughout the knee to kind of improve, you know, hydraulics and fluid movement and kind of warm up that tissue. And then that's, you know, towards the end of a training session, you may start to do some load tolerance work by doing some sustained isometrics or, you know, maybe some small amplitude eccentrics to that area. But that would be an example that we commonly see in basketball is a tendinopathy versus an OCE lesion. And then secondly, I have any MRI that I ever want, but I, I need to manage my, my, my biases on is that actually what the MRI shows or is this just a reactive tendinopathy? So trying to get a better understanding of hypothesis lists and firm up your diagnosis. And then from there, educate the strength coach and different applied forces to that structure. And you can also look at common clinical patterns. So let's get away from the pathology and the diagnosis, just functional patterns that you see with, you know, common diagnoses. So like a common thing with a, uh, an ir- irritable, like anterior knee pain, I could actually give some education on the strength coach that, Hey, I want you to minimize some of the the loading if the leg is in a is the back leg of a split stance because there's more tension and load because the rectus femoris is a little bit 
on stretch and it's putting more compression into the kneecap. So that might be an alteration of I want a Bulgarian split versus just a split stance um, concept because you're minimizing some of that load to the knee. Um, so that's, and you know, also you, you look at if somebody's dealing with knee pain, they're probably going to fall into a trunk or a hip strategy. And you can just inform the strength coaches like, hey, this guy's going to be painful within this range, I assume, based on what I found or whatever you want to kind of base your decision on. But, you know, you can talk to the strength coach. I want you to minimize his torso angle. I want him to be really driving it through his quads. So you're going to kind of take a neutral trunk versus having them fall into some flexion and take some hip strategy in, included. Well, you should never take that stuff for granted. Why would you assume that the strength coach knows that information? Um, so just being being able to look at the pathology or the diagnosis and kind of know the common faults that happen with that that problem. It can, can be very helpful when you communicate with the strength coach. And we can keep this next one in, in the same context in terms of an OCD versus a, a tendinopathy. Um, we've just been talking about the kind of communication from the mostly from the, the the clinician or the therapist to the strength coach. It, it may be in that same uh, you know case comparison that we're talking about. How does the return to play and sort of working backwards from the end goal, how does that communication uh, occur where you are? Does do you lead that or do you is that where the strength and conditioning coach um, communicates to the therapist in the other direction? Yeah, you know, for me, I think the strength coach needs to be completely on board with our direction of care. But when it comes to return to play and um, questions on symptoms and provocation of symptoms, it's, I, I wouldn't want to put that on the strength coach. Um, I, I would rather, you know, even, even us, even in my, in my setting, I have two other PTs and there is a lot of freedom within our PT department, but even with the return to play and having discussions on just diagnosis diagnosis and uh, you know prognosis that all comes from me so i really try to if there's a tight funnel of communication that comes from my my structure it's probably when it comes to return to play and just medical discussion especially when they're they're missing time so i wouldn't want to put too much of on it with the strength coach just because that's a tough uh tough area for them to discuss with the player and Sometimes, you know, in the private sector, you know, you got people paying money to get better. And, you know, this is, this happens in the league. Some guys are looking to not play. They don't want to play sometimes. And it's just that happens with, with sports and you want to really minimize the additional conversation when it comes to that type of stuff to one person. And I guess, it, 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 you know, if you're leading that entire process, uh, you know, at least not necessarily delivering the care all the time, but if you're kind of um, owning that problem, the strategy kind of all sits with you as well. It kind of centralizes it as a thought process, which I guess to some degree removes misinterpretations and, and maybe sometimes some communication issues or uh, miscommunications. You know, uh, it, it minimizes that for sure. It also puts a lot I would say as a leader, I take on a lot of the stress and I allow my staff around me to just be successful in their role. And I kind of take the brunt of any negative things that happen. And if positive things happen, I try to push it on to the people that work under me. 
And, you know, it's, that's kind of a sign of a leader is just making sure people can feel safe within their roles and feel confident when they make decisions. So. Yeah. Nice point. I mentioned your, uh, your obvious enthusiasm for biomechanics and bourbon at the beginning. Um, you know, I'd always welcome bourbon recommendations, but let's chat about the biomechanics half of that. There's no shortage of no shortage of conversations on, you know, force plate testing and how to collect data. Um, and I, I'm definitely guilty of that as a podcast host. Um, you know, within what is no doubt a broad interest in biomechanics for you, is there anything that's currently interesting for you in this space or anything maybe uh, overlooked or, or novel that springs to mind for you? Well, to answer your first question, I'm a Basil Hayden guy. I'm a simple guy. Um, a four rows could be a, a, a second place. Um, and then a bourbon, I would say a bullet for any kind of old fashioned. Um, but uh, when it comes to biomechanics, you know, I have a sports scientist who, he was a PT that I hired. His name's Logan Sullivan. He's kind of my right-hand man and he does a great job. And I hired him because he, he he's, a, he's a physical therapist, a sports PT, didn't have a lot of sports science background when he first came into the Portland team, but I basically allowed him a vast opportunity to learn uh, the field. And basically, I liked his pragmatism and how, he, how his thinking kind of patterned similar to me. So, you know, when we look at biomechanics, uh, you know, force plates, the, I think the one thing that nobody talks about is how do we get players to provide full effort for a force, you know, for a jump? Like, like everyone talks about on the technical side of all the things that they're finding, but I, I would question, I mean, I, I see it every day. And when you're at game 62 and you're getting them on a force plate, I guarantee you they're not giving you the same effort as, you know, the second week of the season when they had their baseline. So, you know, I think there needs to be much more, you know, dialogue on how do you get somebody motivated and how is the communication that you provide this athlete? How do you strategize by showing previous jumps and what should you be striving for this session? Or, you know, even the, the, the leaderboard concept and how can you use that for external motivation to see where they line up with other players. I mean, we transitioned from a, a certain jump uh, software to, you know, we're at four stacks because it's just a simpler, uh, uh, you know, it's a simpler package and it's easier for players to digest their information. So I'd rather have it a simple concept, allowing more effort by our guys so, you know, when it comes to technical things that we look at, you know, I'm in my second year of my PhD and I haven't really firmed up what I want to write my dissertation on, but something that I'm, I'm interested in is RSI, so reactive strength index, and how does it relate to an active, like a reactive tendinopathy where somebody is symptomatic, either Achilles or patellar tendon, and what, how does that, does it delay the RSI, uh, you know, how much? How does it compare to the normative values uh, in basketball? So that's something that, you know, I'm looking into. And there's some issues with even like a drop jump and standardizing it. And, you know, there's there's questions of how do you get that to be a, a cleaner test than, let's say, your classic counter movement jump. But we're looking into, you know, I'm looking into that. And then just naturally, how do you, how do you improve communication? 
to get guys to give full effort in, in the middle of the season. Um, you know, sometimes it's a, it's an advantageous, it sucks, but sometimes a guy's hurt and then you show the last jump that they provided or their baseline. And it was like, you know what, like, I can't give you much information of where you were because clearly you didn't give me a lot of effort. And those scenarios actually improve compliance, but it's after the fact. And hopefully they kind of stay consistent with the plan moving forward. But you, you got to be strategic when that happens because that's like shame on, like shame on the, uh, the staff for not pushing that person to jump with full effort, but then shame on the player as well. So, you know, that's some dialogue that we can continue to have just with sports science and compliance and getting guys to do it. That's an issue that not a lot of people talk about uh, on these podcast episodes. I guess, I guess within that, with the, the intent of their effort or their jump, um, you know, on a side note from the technical and objective side of it, when an athlete doesn't give you that big effort, do you find that that's actually a key window to get some more qualitative and sort of subjective information on just them holistically and how they're feeling or what's going on? Are they symptomatic? Does, you know, how, how, I guess, you know, whether the numbers are are fantastic or not on the jump, it's a good signposting moment or interruption moment for you as a, a therapist to talk to them. Yeah, I mean, it's a great time to talk bullshit to them and <laughs> call call them out for sure. So, you know, I think there's a natural question mark of how's this guy doing mentally and where's he at in the season? And then there's also just why is this guy not giving me full effort? And, you know, sometimes it is a, you know, a short-term, you know, issue on a personal level. And then sometimes it's just they don't fully understand why they're doing it. So that's when you need to step back and say, are we providing enough education for this player to trust us? Because clearly this person doesn't deem this as very important. So our job is, is how do we connect this to what they love to do, which is basketball? And, and how can we verbalize it in a way where they're motivated? So I think it, it varies on each, each scenario for sure. You know, going back, I, you know, Isokinetics were, you know, they're not exactly new. They've been around for a long time in the force profiling and biomechanics space. Um, everybody's got force plates, camera systems, uh, you know, you name it at the moment. Is there anything that you think has been really overlooked in the natural evolution of products uh, coming to market in this space? I mean, you're talking to a guy that has a HUMAC norm. So I, I do iso- isokinetics and I feel like that, you know, this is driven by Eric Mara and Scott Morrison who are, you know, they're in my backyard. I get to see them every day if I want. I can call them at least, but um, you know, those guys are great assets to our team just on a, a consultation and expert level. Um, but yeah, we, I love isokinetics. And if you would ask me three, four years ago when I was sitting at Exos and working on movement patterns and you're asking me about what's the functional level of uh, functionality of an isokinetic unit. Uh, I've totally switched my biases completely, which is a great humbling moment on my end. So isokinetics, I love them. I, you know, when it comes to application, I like to look at, you know, how much torque are they producing from 30 to 50 degrees? Cause that's usually the angle that guys are jumping. You know, you're not going to go deep, deep knee you know you're not going into a deep squat jump with a player is usually jumping from their ankles and their tendons so you know looking at isolated isometric load and then also even just doing a concentric or eccentric assessment of quad index within a range 
is I think is pretty damn valuable. And for me, as a as a director, I, I pulled in isokinetics because we we were using a 1080 quantum to get some isokinetic information on it, and that's basically an isokinetic unit on a on a te- on a Smith machine. And my uh, I was trying to screen guys with their knee health because I I can get an MRI on their knee and see if there's anything that's concerning, but they can fall into a hip strategy very quickly if you do a Bulgarian on a 1080 and I'm getting some false reads and showing that this guy's pretty strong. Now, if I get them on a HUMAC norm and just get them to do a knee extension, you'll know exactly when, if there is something that's concerning, how much can they produce force within that range? You can't hide from it. So um, you can also catch malingering if just based on, you know, the consistency of the curve. So those were questions that needed to be asked when we were got you know we have guys that we look to sign and then also long-term pr- prognosis of young guys that come in with some issues so yeah I'm, i mean i'm dusting that unit off it's pretty it's pretty de- uh, new to us but i i would say the concept is dusted off in our facility you know people tend to i guess to kind of circle around people tend to use um uh, jump testing quite frequently as uh, you know a signaler of something in, in their sports science testing um obviously isokinetic machines aren't quite as fast to set up and use but perhaps they're both sometimes limited by athlete intent somebody can put in a bad jump and equally somebody can uh, not put in a certain level of intent on a on a strength test how do you you know how do you uh, i guess how often do you test or how do you trust that the intent is where you want it to be when you do strength test someone if that's the case well, you know, somebody's much more motivated when they're injured. So you got to remember, it's not only a screen; it's a rehab tool. So if I, if it is a rehab component, I can't I can't recreate the amount of load, the amount of work that can be done in an isolated manner. If it's a quad or hamstring or even a shoulder, I can't I can't recreate that in the training room. So, and one of the biggest issues with our setting is time. So if I have eight minutes, I can get those guys with appropriate amount of load, either eccentric overload or isometric load. And that those eight minutes, biggest bang for your buck. So it's almost like a mind shift or a paradigm shift of like what is valuable. The setup is is challenging. As you get better, the, the player becomes more uh, compliant and understanding. Also, you know, we have a lab and we, you know, you can throw on music that they want to listen to that's not currently in the locker room and they, they can just jam out and just do their thing, but at least they get objective information. So I would say, you know, compliance and education is pretty important, but if you can give them information like, Hey, this is what you did last week and this is where you're at now. I mean, I just finished up a session with one guy and he, he had like a 40% improvement in two weeks with his quad index. I mean, that's pretty motivational and he's, he's really happy about it. So I couldn't have done that in the training room for sure. And I guess on the, you know, moving in the other direction, is there anything new and novel in the biomechanics space that's, um, you know, catching your attention at the moment or intrigues you? Mm. <clears throat> I'm kind of old school, man. Uh, I don't know if I'm old school. I'm just I'm a pragmatist, so we, we're pretty picky on what we want to do. Um, 
you know, we've been exploring a, a product called Plantiga, and I like the practicality of the unit because it provides you uh, symmetrical loading or asymmetrical loading based on the insoles. Um, and now they, before it was like a full insole, and now it's actually just a little, it can customize an orthotic and just put the implant in the orthotic piece so it doesn't bulk up the shoe when they wear it. But it's simple. It, it gives you your G-forces and it gives you your same, your symmetry. So we like to use that even on a return to play or just guys that look like they're fatigued. We'll throw them in their shoe and see how they look with their loading. That's pretty interesting. We actually had Matt Jordan on a while back and I think that was that was for me my first um, discovery of Plantigo when he mentioned it. And obviously he's he's done a lot of work around force play testing to say the least. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you, you know that this is a bit of a um, mystic ball question, fortune telling, but do you, you know, do you think the NBA or do you think the league will ever allow sort of in-game testing or is that, um, do you think that's going to stay in the training room only? Uh, in-game testing or external like tracking? Sorry. Yeah. In-game testing where you can put, oh, yeah. check on play. Yeah. Uh, I, can't, I can't see the sport not. I mean, if you would look at the NBA compared to the MLB and NFL, I would say it's the more progressive of the three major ones. So, you know, and there's just been a big push on load management and general uh, medical care for athletes. And I can't see why that wouldn't be something that will happen in the future. I mean, we, we utilize second spectrum, which gives us an external load, but um, yeah, I think that there's probably going to be a progression to that concept that we currently have. You, um, you mentioned you've done a little bit of work on RSI. Have you got anything else? Uh, are you doing any studies currently or are you involved in any academia at current in your current sort of role? No, not really. Uh, you know, I am a, like I said, I'm a generalist. I, uh, a humble generalist. I'm a, was slinging, 30 patients a day for a few years to then honing my skills as a manual therapist and then getting into sports. But I mean, my perspective is I'm, I can oversee a lot of things because I've been through a lot and I've seen a lot, but yeah, you know, my second year, my PhD, I got to start, you know, deciding what I want to be when I grow up. So I, you know, I'm currently still looking, but those are the things, you know, RSI, just because it's closely related to the stretch shortening cycle and the tendon, uh, the tendon complex. And, you know, I just think that that brings some value, but yeah, I'm, I'm still exploring and still learning every day. So you mentioned early on about, um, you know, recruitment and, uh, that being a part of what you do is, you know, as you've experienced it, maybe in pro sport, is there things that you as a, as a person are looking for when you recruit or is it very prescriptive to what you've already got in your team? Uh, so recruitment as in staffing? Yeah. Yeah. Staffing. Uh, yeah. You know, I look for the right person. Uh, the credentials I'm not so tied up on. Um, I, I like strength coaches that are pure strength coaches. I like PTs that are pure PTs, but it has to happen in the context of our team. In the NBA, we have the smallest staff in the league. So I just got a bunch of guys that can do a lot of things. And that's just for our, you know, that's for us as a team to excel. I, I, it has to happen. So, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for individuals that can fill many gaps and just hungry, like low ego, humble people, 
Um, you know, I look for people that have a story. So I look for people that have gone through some trauma in their life and have come out on the other end and are resilient and have this almost appreciation of where they're at in their career. So that's things that I really lock on when I look for applicants. That's really valuable. And I appreciate you sharing that as well, because I think the nature of a podcast is there's always going to be very um, motivated people listening to them for that extra bit of information beyond, you know, if they're, if they're a student, uh, academia, if they're entering the profession, I think they'll use podcasts for that sort of information. For me, for me as a leader on our staff, I mean, I'm a kid from North Dakota. I was born and raised in a hundred, hundred year old farm. I have a piece of brick from that farm that's on my desk and I look at it every day. And to me, that's just a reflection, though I haven't gone through any major traumas that other people have gone. There's always this chip or this kind of underdog mentality that I look uh, for, for people that, that I kind of gravitate to. I look for the cynical guy, the individuals that can kind of start to question the general concepts of human performance and I'm not somebody that gets caught in algorithmic thinking and these kind of common trends that you see in human performance. I'd rather have people that are locked in on foundational sciences and have really strong principles and kind of go from there. That's really valuable. Um, where's the best place for people to find you, mate? Are you, you well, said Twitter's in the, in the archives, yeah. but where are you active? I, I really do not want to have anybody add me to their Twitter. Like just, <laughs> is going to be going to be a waste of time for both of us. Um, you know, my email is easy to catch me. It's J Ellis. So J E L I S three, one, three at gmail.com and Instagram. That's probably my preferred, uh, social media. It's physio under slash Ellis. And I also do Facebook as well. Um, I am a co-owner of a continuing education company called Phoenix manual therapy. Uh, we, we do courses throughout the country, but we're stationed in Phoenix and that's, we do, you know, manual therapy courses predominantly, but a lot of clinical reasoning and just, uh, looking again at principles and thinking and, and where do you arrive with a intervention and plan and kind of go from there. So, you know, that's probably the best way to reach me is email or, or social media. Cool. I mean, we'll put those links and handles in the, in the episode description and also on the uh, the episode show notes so people can easily find that but jesse thank you so much for coming on for a chat mate it's been good to get to know you and um, yeah thanks for your time today all right man I'll, I'll wait for that basil hayden uh sometime soon maybe once we go back to philly whenever whenever the season comes back yeah that one would be on me if you're in this town all right my friend thank you i'd like to say a big thanks again to jesse for coming on today's show I really enjoyed talking shop and picking his brains on everything discussed. His broad knowledge and perspective was uh, clearly evident and he's just an interesting guy to converse with, as I hope you'll all agree listening. Please hit subscribe if you haven't already. We've got some more great guests and conversations coming up at the moment. So hit subscribe to ensure you don't miss any of them. Today's conversation, like all episodes, will have show notes, which you can find at informperformance.com. You can also find us on Instagram at informperformance or on Twitter at InformPod. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Inform Performance Podcast with me, Andy McDonald. Tune in next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.